Amen. That is indeed our prayer this morning as we open the word of the Lord. I invite you uh, to do that together to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Our text this morning is verse 21 through 38. Luke, chapter 3, verse 21, down to the end of the chapter, verse number 38. Um, as you find that, I'd like to ask that you would stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God Almighty. Let's see what the Lord would have us to hear from the end of Luke chapter 3. Begin reading in verse number 21. Let us hear together the Word of God Almighty. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of jo- Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arkphad, Arkhad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the Son of God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, for this day, for your word, we give you praise and thanks. Father, we thank you that your word reveals truth to us. We thank you, Father, for how your word points us to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And so, Father, indeed, that is our prayer as we come to your word that you would show us Christ this morning. 
Father, for those who are trusting and believing in you, would you help our faith to be ever firm and continue to spread its roots in our life and that our faith in you would be displayed in our desire to please you and live in obedience to you because of who you are. Father, I pray that your word would give sight to the blind this morning. Father, pray that your word would bring life where there is death, that this would all be to the praise of your great grace and mercy to us, shown in living form through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray together, amen. You may be seated. Thus far in this great book, uh, Luke has been recording events for us that are leading up to the public ministry of Jesus. So if you will, he's been giving us sort of a backstory leading up to the event where Jesus and his public ministry would begin. He began, as we saw, with the birth stories. The birth stories of both John the Baptist, the forerunner, the preparer of the way for Jesus, and also the birth story of Jesus himself. God has spoken, we've seen in this book, through his angels, to Zechariah, to Mary, to the shepherds. God had revealed who Jesus was to Simeon and Anna in the temple. We got to hear our first recorded words of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in chapter 2, verse 49, when he was in the temple. And now we fast forward to when Jesus and John the Baptist were about 30 years of age. And as we saw last week in the first 20 verses of chapter 3, John the Baptist began his ministry. He began preparing the way for Jesus Christ to prepare the people's hearts for what God was doing through Jesus. And God gave his people many signs, many signs. Even before Jesus was born, even before his public ministry, many signs to what he was up to, to who he was, and that our faith should be placed in him. Not to mention all the signs we're going to see throughout the whole gospel of the book of Luke. We don't know specifically what the years were like between age 12 and 30 for Jesus. Uh, we do know that he grew, as the text tells us, in wisdom and stature. He continued to grow in obedience. At every stage in his life, he was perfect. No sin, no sinful disobedience, no sinful rebellion. Jesus was perfect. And now we come to see some 30 years after his birth. 30 years of a life lived for us in active obedience to God the Father. And now that uh, these verses, as you are, are sort of a transition from that earlier period to now to Jesus's public appearance. And it began with John the Baptist. And now Jesus's adult public ministry is beginning. And so God will speak. And quite literally today, we're going to see that God is going to speak. He's going to confirm for us who Jesus is. So these verses, before launching into chapter four, these verses are God putting his stamp of approval, as it were, upon 
Jesus. By his great mercy and grace in these verses, God is saying loud and clear, this is Jesus. This is the savior of the world. This is the one who was talked about that is to come. Here is the one whom my spirit is upon. Here is the one whom I love, whom I affirm, who I endorse. Jesus is king and savior. And so that's what Luke is doing. That's uh, the synopsis of these uh, verses of what Luke is doing for us as he's pointing uh, us to who Jesus is and God's approval upon him. So we're going to see, breaking down into uh, two points this morning. First, we're going to see that Jesus is confirmed by the Father in verse 21 and 22. And then we're going to see that Jesus is confirmed by genealogy in the remaining verses this morning. So again, in all of this, Luke is wanting us to see what John the Baptist had already said in chapter 3, verse number 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here is where that begins. All flesh is seeing right now where Jesus, as it were, is coming out and showing that he is the Savior. All flesh is going to see salvation, and it's going to be seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And so let's begin uh, looking at confirmed by the Father, verse 21 and 22. So in these verses as a whole, again, Luke is showing us that God is endorsing Jesus and his ministry. This is where uh, uh, you could say that Jesus begins his ministry, or at least the hinge verse pointing into that. His public ministry being inaugurated. There's three things for us to see um, in these two verses that point out for us. First is his baptism, his baptism. So we see in verse 21... Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and it continues on there. So obviously here, the context of the baptism uh, being spoken of was the baptism of John, the baptism of John that the previous verses recorded for us. John, as we know, was out in the wilderness. He was preaching. He was administering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People were flocking to this feel-good message by this feel-good preacher out in the wilderness calling people to come to Jesus, tongue-in-cheek. But people were coming and receiving this baptism. They were going out to this baptism, many of them coming, confessing their sins, doing this very thing, confessing they needed to repent, that they needed forgiveness. This was his ministry. And then here comes Jesus. He comes to be baptized. Just picture it, John out in the wilderness wearing his garb, people coming, flocking, and here comes Jesus literally walking, whether it's a hill or whatnot, whatever. Jesus is coming. He is walking up to where John is baptizing. And, and if you're like me, you just read these verses, and probably the first thing you think is why? Why did Jesus submit himself to baptism? He was sinless, right? Jesus had nothing to repent of. Why did he come to John for this, right? We can understand him being there, being out there uh, with John, but why not not be baptized, right? Why not show, hey, I don't have anything to repent of. I'm the Savior. Well, two quick-ish answers to that. First, 
you'll recall this same event recorded in Matthew's gospel, don't you? Uh, You'll remember that Matthew records for us how John objected. He objected to Jesus being baptized. John said, hey, look, I, I don't need to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you, right? I'm the one that needs baptism. He recognized who Jesus was. But remember, Jesus responded, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, look, just do it. It's the right thing to do. It's fitting for me. This is the proper thing to do to come to receive baptism, and it's the right thing to do, and I'm going to do the right thing here. So that's the first sort of answer. Jesus submitted to this baptism because the baptism of repentance that John preached was the right thing to do. It was the right thing for people to be doing. It was good. So Jesus did it, not because he had sin, but because it was right. It was proper. It was proper for him to do. And it also sort of linked him to John the Baptist. It's almost his coming underneath John the Baptist saying, yes, this is of the Lord, what John is doing. And I'm coming to affirm that fact that this is of the Lord. This is the right thing to do. That's the first thing. The second thing why Jesus was baptized was to identify with us, to identify with us. What I mean by that is to identify with sinners, with sinners. Picture the scene out in the desert, uh, the desert being like, like a, a countryside, not a lot growing. You had a river flowing. John is in a river. Uh, by the way, that's m- how much water you need for a biblical baptism, right? You got to get them under, right? You can't just be in a puddle. You got to be in, in the water, side note. And John is standing in the river and he's standing there baptizing. And here comes Jesus. He's with the people. He's one of the people, and he comes himself to be baptized. What Jesus is saying by that is, I am with you. I am identifying with you. Luke simply states in this verse, quite amazingly, he says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. It's almost like a just, hey, yeah, Jesus was baptized. But what he does there is he's connecting those. He says, when all the people were baptized and Jesus was baptized, he's just showing us that this is a connection here of Jesus identifying with us. Jesus is a friend to sinners. Jesus doesn't run away from us in our sin. Jesus runs to us in our sin. That's the type of savior that we have. We'll see that throughout the rest of the book of Luke. Jesus moves towards sinners and praise God for that fact if you're a sinner here this morning. He runs to us. That is our savior. And so I think think Jesus is identifying with us in his baptism here. Also notice that Luke states, quote, uh, he was baptized and was praying and was praying. Luke is the only gospel writer to include this in this account. Uh, of Jesus' baptism, uh, that these things happened while Jesus was praying. This will be a theme, and we'll see reoccurring in Luke's Luke's gospel. We will see Jesus many times. He's going out to the mountains to pray. He's withdrawing from the crowds to go pray, and he's praying at the Mount of Olives and etc. We will see Jesus going out to pray, and Jesus needed to communicate with the Father, And the means by which God communicates with us is through his word and through prayer. Prayer, you see, shows our dependence upon God. 
It shows our dependence that we need God. Prayer shows a humility about us. In fact, where there is prayerlessness, I guarantee you there is no doubt pride. Where there is a lack of prayer in our life, to the degree that there's a lack of prayer, there's an increase in pride. Because sort of what we're saying by that is, is I got it. I have this under control. I'm good. Right? In times of our life when it's very evident to us that we don't have it under control and things aren't good, right? That's typically when our prayer goes very much up, right? When we see that. But God help us to see that all the time, right? All the time we need Christ. We need to communicate with our Father through Christ. And we see the example of Jesus here doing that very thing. We need to pray, an attitude of prayer. And so Luke emphasizes that in this verse. So we see Jesus, the first thing there, being baptized. Second, we see his anointing. Uh, Again, uh, this is sort of hard to imagine, but try. Jesus there in the wilderness being baptized by John, and the text tells us, and the heavens were opened. The heavens were opened. This is apocalyptic type of language. Verse 22 says, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. This was his anointing, God preparing him for ministry. Jesus is the, as we know from scripture, anointed Messiah. In chapter four, verse one, look at it real quick there, that first verse. It says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. See, and so that's what God is doing right here. He is placing his anointing upon Jesus. This was seen visually. I mean, again, this this scene is kind of hard to imagine. If you are out there with John, you're out there being baptized, all of a sudden the heavens were opened. Honestly, I I don't know what that means exactly. I just know that it would be fun to be there and to see whatever that was. The heavens were opened up. The sky, as it were, was opened up. And then the text says that the Holy Spirit in some type of bodily form, like a dove, came down. I just draw your attention there that the like there is a simile. Uh, So it doesn't seem like it actually was a dove uh, that came down and descended. Whatever descended was like a dove that came down into a sin. Just pointing that out for all our little dove things that we see uh, on this uh, time. But again, what, who, I don't know what is something like a dove, phys, dove physically that their eyes were seeing that came down and rested upon Jesus. This is God showing my, his anointing upon Christ, which leads to his approval. The heavens were open and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What better confirmation than this recorded for us? Before God had spoken, before God spoke through angels to Mary, to Zachariah, to shepherds, etc. But here, recorded for us in God's holy word, we have the verbal voice of God saying, Jesus is who he says he is. This is my beloved son. This is 
Jesus. And what is affirmed by that is, as we're going to see, listen to him. This is the Savior. This is him. This is God. What more could God say? Literally, this is the Savior. And everyone there heard it. God speaking from the clouds. God affirming, this is he. This is my son, my beloved son. To be beloved is to be the object of affection. And Jesus is loved by the Father. Jesus is the Son. God is well pleased with Jesus. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. These events recorded here do not confer upon Jesus some sort of new status as is some believe that he was kind of adopted as God's son at this point as if he was not before. Rather, they're confirming the truth that has already been proclaimed in chapter 1, verse 32 to 35. That Jesus is the most high and that the child to be born to Mary would be the son of God. What a beautiful picture, by the way, we see here of the Trinity as we see at work in these verses. One, God, three persons, the Father speaking and conveying his love to the Son, Jesus, who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is God confirming who Jesus is. God the Father himself testifying and giving confirmation that Jesus is the beloved Son and that God is pleased with Christ. Doesn't that compel us likewise to believe in Christ? To have faith and assurance that our trust in him is well-placed? I mean, think about it for a minute. This is the God of heaven, the God who created all things is saying, this is my son, I love him, I'm well-pleased in him. What greater thing could we long for than to hear God say, in essence, the same thing about us, that we are loved by God, that we have been accepted by God. And we know that through the rest of the New Testament and here, that can happen through Jesus Christ. That just as Jesus was the beloved of the Father, so also us in Christ are beloved of the Father. That God loves us through Jesus Christ. So I pray that if you're here today and you are trusting in Christ, that you would just be encouraged by the fact that God loves you. He loves you through Jesus Christ. And that if you are in Christ, you are beloved of God. That is an amazing truth to ponder this morning. On the flip side of that, if you are not trusting in Christ, if you're not believing in him, then the Bible actually states that we are his enemy, that we are the enemy of God, and God's wrath will be poured out upon us because we have sinned. And so the calling to you this morning would be to trust in Jesus. This is who God puts forward for us for salvation, Jesus Christ, he is the perfect savior. He is beloved of God. This is God's stamp of approval for us of whom to receive salvation from. 
So implore you today to believe in the promise of Jesus Christ. Believe that he lived in obedience for you. Believe that he died on the cross in your place to take your wrath for you. Believe that he was raised for our justification on the third day, proving who he is and what he has done. And that sinners can find forgiveness through believing in this Savior, Jesus Christ. So we see God putting his stamp of confirmation upon Jesus at this beginning of his public ministry. Next thing we see here is confirmed by genealogy. Confirmed by genealogy. And this brings us to a long list of names. And you might be thinking, man, we were doing really good. This is really getting good. God's speaking, heavens are opening. Jesus started in his ministry. He's being baptized, confirmed by the Father. He's getting ready uh, to, in chapter four, be led out into the wilderness, be tempted into sin. He's gonna withstand. He's gonna be obedient for us. Luke kind of, the long list of names. How important can this be? I mean, aren't we supposed to skip over these things? I mean, not like in the Bible reading plan, you're like, hey, I can make up some ground. Here's the genealogy. Next verse, right? We can be so self-absorbed in our little Bible reading of thinking it's all about me. That's another thing. Let me assure you, these verses are important. First off, I mean, just T-ball, they're important because they're in here, right? This is inspired scripture, and so it's, it's important, and it's in there, just like the rest of the Bible. It's all equally inspired. Not is it inspired. There are records for us, important facts for us. Not only is it inspired, it's important facts about the promises of God and the dealings of God with us. Genealogies are important. They're not just something you give to the associate pastor to preach. Say, yeah, it's a genealogy. Give it to him. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Genealogies are an important part of the Bible. Just ask the priests in the book of Ezra who were not permitted to serve because they could not prove their lineage because they were not enrolled in a genealogy. And so the priests couldn't, couldn't come to serve because their name, as it were, wasn't in the genealogy. Now, I know that for us, seems like in our society, uh, we don't place a heavy emphasis upon genealogies or family trees. I know some do, some do. Maybe I'm sheltered and off, but it seems like most, most don't, right? Not many of us, most of us can't take our lineage back 2,000 years. Um, I w- if you, that's great. If you can, speak to me after the service. I would love to know um, if you can do that. That's awesome. But hopefully we can see how in Scripture these are important. And so that's what I want us to see. Consider four important truths of genealogy, specifically this genealogy. So four things that we need to see about this genealogy before us. Number one, Jesus fulfills God's promises. Jesus fulfills God's promises. Luke's genealogy is unique in that he starts with Jesus and then works back in time, right? Most go the opposite way, back in time down to the present. But and in verse 23, we see Luke acknowledge how people thought or assumed that Jesus was the son of Joseph, as it states. Luke assumes that we've read the first two chapters of this book where we see the virgin conception, the virgin birth. But after 30 years... 
people in the neighborhood, so to speak, uh, would have just known him as Joseph's son, right? And so he says, as was assumed as, as Joseph's son, but we know different because we know what happened, right? We know we're privy to what happened with Mary and the Holy Spirit, and we, are, we know what has happened there. This list has 77 ancestors recorded. Of importance is how we see Jesus fulfilling the promises made in the Old Testament to certain people. Just consider for a second David. So I'm going to pluck some names out of here. Uh, Don't worry. I don't have a sub 77 point message here to walk through every single person. I'll cover a lot of them uh, with one swoop. Uh, But anyway, David, we see David is, uh, Jesus is the heir of David, an important Uh, figure in this genealogy. In verse 31, we see that Jesus is the son of David. He's from the Davidic line. And you know that this is important because of what the Old Testament promised. Let me read some verses for you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 15 and 16, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. First Chronicles 17, 14, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. All of these are referring to David. Jeremiah 23, five to six, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Ezekiel in 34, 23 says, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. We could go on and on, but what we see in the Old Testament are promises made through the descendant of King David to bring forth the greater king from this lineage. And what these verses are doing for us is saying, Jesus fulfills that promise. Jesus is that person. He is the king who will rule forever upon the throne of David. We also see in here Abraham. So just working our way kind of back like like, uh, Luke did in recording, we see Abraham and know that in Genesis 12, one to three, the Lord said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's in Christ, in Christ that we become children of Abraham. Even if we are Gentiles, And even if we are ethnic Jews, it's in Christ. It is those of faith in Jesus Christ that are sons of Abraham. Jesus fulfills all of these promises from the Old Testament written to us. Not only that, it mentions Adam here. This takes us all the way back, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We see there, it's spoken, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the offspring of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. You see, Jesus had to come through this lineage because God had promised that he would. God made these promises. He said the Savior will come through this lineage, and it's almost like a a filter, starting with Adam, then to Abraham, then to David, and he's filtering this down, the Savior of the world coming from Adam through this filter to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's actually drastically important for the New Testament to affirm this fact to affirm that Jesus is this one. The genealogy is another major testimony that points to who Jesus is. Again, we kind of read it, and we're like, man, that's a lot of names. Well, it is. It is. But one thing we need to be reminded of, these names point us back to the fact that God made promises and Jesus fulfills it, that God has kept his word. So these things are drastically important for us to see. This week, I read about um, a missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators that went to uh, Papua New Guinea uh, roughly 15, 20 years ago. And Wycliffe Wycliffe Bible Translation, this, this ministry is specifically just that, to translate the Bible into indigenous languages uh, where, where people don't have the word of God in their mother tongue, right? And so the, these uh, godly uh, men and women, unknown to most everybody, plant their lives, give their lives to go to a place. And this one uh, uh, read about a person that went to Papua New Guinea and they spend two years there learning the language as best they can, uh, learn, learning the culture, learning the language. And they spend a, a long time doing that. Um, they study these things from a grammatical standpoint and they have somebody from the tribe uh, come along with them because who better to know the language than a, a native speaker, obviously. And so they help them translate. And this translator was translating the word of God. He says, we're going to begin in Matthew. Do you know what's in Matthew chapter 1? A a, a long list of names. And so the translator said, man, I don't want to start with that. We're going to start with chapter 2. And so the translator started with chapter 2. And he went through and translated the whole of the gospel of Matthew and got to chapter 28. And still nobody from the tribe had believed in Jesus. They hadn't believed in him. And he, he was a touch dismayed at this, uh, of saying that people hadn't believed in this. And so what he did is, well, we might as well round off the book. Let me go back and translate chapter one. And he went back to, G- to Matthew chapter one, and he translated the genealogy. And that was he was translating, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, the son of the son of the son. He started going, and he said the people started getting agitated. And he saw their eyes opening up. And, and as he was translating, he got to the end of that chapter, and they said, what, you're telling me These are actual people? This isn't just something that you white people made up and brought over to us? These aren't just fairy tales? You mean there actually was an Abraham? There actually was a David? And he he said, yes, there actually. He says, we can take our genealogy all the way back many generations. And they believed in Jesus Christ at that time because they saw these things are real. These things are historical. God working through people in time and in place. And that's the same testimony it should be for us, that we see that God is a God of promises. These things aren't myths. 
This isn't a fairy tale religion like believing in unicorns or something like that. No, this is the truth of God through actual people. Leads us to our second point. God is sovereignly at work in the timeline of the world. Just consider some of these stories that we know from the names mentioned. I just pluck one out, Boaz, right? Boaz, we remember him from the Old Testament book of Ruth. He was the man who trusted in God in the midst of crooked generation and times when everyone was doing what is right in their own eyes. As we know, he ended up marrying the Moabitess Ruth and the amazing story of how God worked to keep the line of promise through difficult times in Israel's past through this man who trusted in God. Big names, as we see, like Abraham, Adam, Jacob. Did you also notice in reading through here to your ears, maybe you've not heard of some of these people? <laughs> I know it's a stretch, but can you think about that? that there's some people in here you hadn't, haven't heard of. 77 generations mentioned here. 36 of the people we know absolutely nothing about. 36 people, just a name. Just a name. We know nothing about them, absolutely nothing. They just have their name recorded in this genealogy. What does that teach us? I think it teaches us that God is at work in the lives of normal, everyday people. God is sovereign. God is in control. And you know what? He's in control of when and where you are born. Any of y'all have a hand in that? Lord, here's, I'd like to be born, yeah, yeah, about 19, whatever. America, yeah, give me America. Be born here, be, right? No, that's, that's not, God is in control and sovereign over all of those things. He's in control of our lives and God works through his people in every generation that comes and goes in this world. Listen to that fact for a moment. God works in every single generation that comes and goes in this world. And I think it's drastically important for us to see this because it gives us meaning. It shows us life has purpose, life has meaning. We find that meaning and purpose in God and what he is up to. I know nothing about Janai. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Kassam, Mathah, Mena, Melki. But God worked through them and used them to bring about his glorious plans upon this earth. And I think the same thing could be said for most of us here today. I know it could have me. Our Lord and Savior is at work, at work in every generation. It's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's our Savior who said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Know and realize God is at work in the timeline of history and the timeline of the year 2020. God is using people, little people, little people like you and me to bring about his glorious plan. That should encourage us. That should encourage us. Number three is a point that death comes to us all. Death comes to us all. I say, well, that's not very encouraging. Well, hold on for just a second. I can't help but read through a genealogy without being confronted with that fact. 
right? Everybody on here, save for the name of Jesus, everybody on here died. Well, he died, but he rose from the dead. Not everybody else rose from the dead, right? They died. What we have before us is a list, list of people who have died. And I just simply say, be confronted with that reality and don't live or think that you won't die. I say this especially to the younger folks today, whoever that is, right? It's easy to think that in, in your life that that's way out there. I just confront and bring to you, we don't know when that is and we need to live like that. We need to live with that soberly in our lives. We must let that truth propel us to obedience, propel us to seeing the seriousness that, that life is short and that we're here to glorify God with our lives and the time that he has given us on this earth. And let's be about that. Let's be about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist has been talking about. I pray that that truth, the reality of our death that is coming, I pray that that would spur us on to obedience, to live in obedience to Christ, to give your life to glorifying him. That is what we would want if we, whatever point we make it to, to look back on our life, I know that we will say at that point, I, I wish I would have lived for Christ more, not less. Fourth thing is Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the savior of the world. Luke especially emphasizes this fact because he takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam, the son of God. This will uh, be the theme that's repeated in the following chapter, chapter four, where Jesus will represent a greater Adam that did not fall into sin, did not fall into temptation. But what we see here is the genealogy reaching all the way back to the first person ever created. In doing this, Luke is tying together every person, all humankind into one lump, Jesus is not the isolated savior of a particular people group in a particular place in a particular time. No, Jesus is the savior of the world to every single human being of all time, all places, all people groups, everywhere. Jesus is the savior and the Messiah for them both Jew and Greek, the savior of the world. He's God's anointed. Luke confirms who Jesus is by the words of the Father that we see him speaking that this is Jesus. And he confirms here through this genealogy of this list of names and as it were almost a list of no names that we know nothing about that point through their life that this is Jesus. This is who he is. He is the savior of the world, right? That puts the whole onus of missions upon believers, right, of all of us. Who's to take this message? It's believers. It's believers who have to take this message of Jesus Christ. He's the savior of the world. There's not one place on this earth that's inhabited by people that we can say, oh, we don't need to take the gospel there, right? No, Jesus is the savior of all of the world. What is our part in that as followers of Jesus? He is the savior of the world. If you're here this morning, you're not trusting in him, would you realize that this isn't, this isn't an, an American sort of religion, right? This isn't, this isn't a, a thing uh, uh, made up by the, us. This, this is Jesus through time and place from eternity past that God has kept his promises 
And praise God, we've heard about it. Praise God that we've heard about the gospel message of Jesus Christ, of who he is, his historicity, how he fulfills scripture and how our faith is right to be placed in him. When you come across genealogies in the Bible, in your Bible reading plan, as you're reading, just remember when you see them, God is faithful to keep his promises. He works through normal, everyday people in each generation. And let that encourage you to obedience. And most of all, when we see a genealogy in Scripture, wherever it is, realize that it is ultimately pointing forward to confirm for us that Jesus is our promised Savior. Will you trust in him, believe in his promises this day? He is beloved of God. He is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the ancient words of Scripture that reach all the way back, grabbing names thousands of years ago. Father, we pray that these words, though very old, would call us to believe in Jesus Christ this day and be encouraged in him, trusting in him, knowing that the truth of these ancient words will lead us safely home. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.